You guys open up to Colossians chapter 2 for me, will ya? The Lord has just been doing something in my life through um, going through the word that has been changing my family and, uh, and it happens to be addressed in Colossians 2, where we're at in the word. Very next teaching on Wednesday night would be this teaching. And in my heart, it was just stirred like, man, our whole body needs to hear this on a Sunday, but when will that ever happen? And with the schedule being what it is, it's happening right now. And I just believe that that is by the leading of the Spirit. And so um, we're in Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to be using verses 13 through 22 or 23 as uh, kind of a a launching pad into the, the subject on my heart this morning. So, Lord, as we come before your word, as Blaine said, we bow our hearts to Christ, to the word, so aware that uh, today's message will be a war against current American culture and Prineville, Calvary Chapel of Crook County um, lifestyle that could be in very contrary to the scriptures. And so, We pray that the gospel would be preached, that grace would just saturate today, that the lies of the enemy would be thwarted, that you would bring the word of God to bear on our hearts as we get into your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Title today's message, A High Esteem of the Lord's Day. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said that what the church needs to do most of all, is to begin herself to live the Christian life. If she did that, men and women would be crowding into our buildings. They would say, what is the secret of this? As Christians, one of the greatest need is for the Spirit of God to cultivate biblical godliness in us in order to put the beauty of Christ on display through us all to the glory of the triune God. And so I pray with Lloyd-Jones that the Lord would inform our mind, warm our affections, and transform the whole person by the spirit of grace so that the church may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Through the church history, the Lord's day has been set apart for rest and for worship. But just in the last few decades, the Western church has rejected this idea. Is the biblical standard for Sabbath, rest, and worship still relevant for today? From the first day of the ascension of Jesus until just the last few decades, the people of God have placed a high value on the Lord's day. Now we think of it as a dreary day that ruins our weekend plans. Most Christians are content giving the Lord one hour on a Sunday. Are they correct in doing this? Let's look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. 
He's wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. What a beautiful set of scriptures here that we studied two weeks ago on Wednesday night. The bad news is that we were dead in our offenses, in our crossing the line. We were dead in trespasses. We were dead in sin. But the good news is he woke us up out of death. He made us alive. He forgave us of all our trespasses. There was a list of debt against us. We were more than bankrupt. We were in debt. And he took that debt and he wiped it away all throughout the scriptures. That word wiping away speaks of blotting out and just washing away all of our sins. And that is such good news to Rory Rogers. And you can insert your name in there who were dead in a list of offenses against God. Not only did he do that, he take, took that list, blotted it out and nailed it upon the cross next to the placard that said, Jesus, King of the Jews. In that action, he did a radical spiritual work where he disarmed principalities and powers. These are rulers in the spiritual realm. These are big time demonic forces that even Daniel would call the prince and powers of the air. And not only did he disarm them, he humiliated these demons. He made a public spectacle of them, including Satan, who's been known from the beginning to be called that serpent of old, the slanderer and the liar. He was disarmed and he was humiliated. He was triumphed over at the cross. You guys, this is great news. This is better than good news. The ESV version says, by canceling out the record of debt that stood against, against us with its legal demands, he set them aside, nailing them to the cross. I know what I've done. I had an accountability partner back in college, and he would tease me by calling me and leaving voicemails and going, I know your sin. <laughs> God knows your sin. I know my sin. But that sin has been blotted out, wiped away, nailed to the cross, forgiven and forgotten. And the ones who would try to bring those charges against me, they are humiliated because of the blood of Jesus Christ and the act on the cross. You guys, we cannot go into today's study without having that lead in to verse 16. In fact, Alistair Banks said, he forgave my sin, canceled the written code. He disarmed the powers that seek to ensnare you and me and bring us to nothing. And he triumphed over them in the cross. This little passage will reward our future study. So whatever you hear from me today, you remember my introduction was the gospel and that all of my trespasses and yours have or can be forgiven and you can be set free in no way is today's message to put a legalistic trip or a yoke of bondage upon you that would be an exact contradiction to these previous passages but here we have in verse 16 it says so let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or a sabbath 
the problem that the Colossians were going through is that there was a cultic group like similar, very similar to the Gnostics who would come in and lay a trip upon the Colossian church, a, a trip of legalism and a trip of mysticism and trips of philosophy. That's part of Satan's little trickery is he would add to Jesus Christ in the gospel a set of rules and he would deceitfully call it spirituality. It's been said legalism always has a cultural face. And the Colossians were having two different trips put up upon them that could be categorized as diets and days. Because of what Jesus has done, don't let the Gnostics come in and put any trip upon what you're eating or the days that you are observing. A similar passage would be in Romans 14, 3 through 6. Remember, diets and days. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. And let him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has received him. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand. For God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day over another, esteems another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and give God thanks. So we have two passages, Colossians 2.16 and Romans 14.5. Passages that, as Blaine mentioned while he was up here, can be taken as evangelical cigarettes, stripped out of the Bible, rolled up nicely, dragged upon till it makes us feel better, and then tossed away to the curb. In taking those verses out of context, we can toss in the trash some of the other beautiful things the Lord has for us to know him more fully and more intimately and to partake of all of the blessings that were won for us in the cross at Calvary. And that being the value and observance of the Lord's day. John Murray was professor of Westminster Theological Seminary. He said the Sabbath institution is a creation ordinance. Genesis was incorporated in the moral law of the Decalogue of the Ten Commandments. Therefore, it is not set aside with the ceremonial law, but it has abiding significance in the New Testament, the early church gathered to break bread as a perpetual recurring memorial to Jesus' resurrection. John speaks of it in Revelation 1.10 as the Lord's day, the abiding sanctity of each reoccurring seventh day as the memorial of God's rest in creation and of Christ's exaltation in his resurrection is not to be regarded as in any way impaired by Romans 14.5. The reference there is to the ceremonial law, which has been set aside, but not to the moral law 
to which we have been returned. To live not to be accepted by God, but to live to show our love for God, having been set free by our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the Colossian heresy was that faith in Jesus was not enough to provide fullness of knowledge and wisdom and power and salvation. So Paul is saying, don't let anyone come and give you that garbage. You know your Bibles well enough that that isn't the case. But is Paul saying here that the Sabbath is the fourth commandment, which is being vetoed from the 10? Remember Romans 14, 5, one person esteems one day above another Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. It's important today to note that the fourth commandment of Sabbath remembrance and sanctity is no matter of personal preference. It is a doctrinal issue. It is a biblical issue. Let's look at the very first mention in Exodus 21. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself the carved image. Hop down to verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and hallowed it. Verse 12, honor your father and mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Now I had to note, as I was studying the Ten Commandments, that just as in the New Testament, the story of the gospel moves us to acts of obedience in light of the gospel, the same is true in the Old Testament in the giving of the law. The Lord your God redeemed you out of the house of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. That's the gospel. That's the closest thing the Israelites had to the gospel, and it's the gospel New Testament. We've been redeemed out of Egypt, out of the world, out of the house of bondage. And how interesting that within the Ten Commandments, the fourth commandment actually has the gospel in it as well. The good news that in six days, 
The Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in it, and he rested the seventh day, and he blessed the seventh day, the Sabbath day, and he hallowed it. This command that has the gospel for some reason is warred both in and out by the church. And we need today the Holy Spirit to bring conviction into our hearts and change where it is needed. On the one hand, the American church, and I would say Calvary Chapel of Crook County, has a complete lack of conviction of any significance of the fourth commandment. And on the other hand, total confusion of what this commandment even means. Let me take you back a couple hundred years, just under that, to the Civil War, where we have General Stonewall Jackson, who is a legend in American history. You guys got to watch of Gods and Generals. You Prineville men are going to love it. And in that movie, you see the integrity and character of this man, though he fought for the Confederacy, had a hatred for slavery. There's a lot in all of that. You will know that he was a man of extreme principle and character. And at the heart of this was his conviction and faith in Jesus Christ. He had extreme rigorous character attached to itself and to the observance of the Sabbath day. His widow wrote in his biography saying, Certainly, he was not less scrupulous in obeying the divine command to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy than he was in any other rule of his life. Since the Creator has set apart this day for his own and commanded it to be kept holy, he believed that it was wrong for him to desecrate it by worldly pleasure, idleness, or secular enjoyment as to break any other commandment of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Sunday was his busiest day of the week, as he always attended church twice a day and taught in two Sabbath schools. He refrained as much as possible from all worldly conversation. And in his family, if secular topics were introduced, he would say with a kindly smile, we'll talk about that tomorrow. He never traveled on Sunday. He never took his mail from his post office, nor committed a letter of his own travel, uh, of his own to travel on that day. Always before posting it, calculating the time that it required to reach its destination. One so strict in his Sabbath observance naturally believed that it was wrong for the government to carry the mail on Sunday. Any organization which exacted secular labor from its employees on a Sunday was, in his opinion, a violator of God's law, and so his life was marked by a rigorous obedience to the law of God. Now, (laughs) the elders have a little joke that whenever we go through a really hard elders meeting, we all lean back in our chair and go... You all are going to be doing that by the end of today. The testimony of Stonewall Jackson begs the question, is this quote an anachronism? In other words, if Jackson was right, 
where does that leave us? Because if we are right, and that would be most of us in this room, then he was wrong. One thing is for sure, we aren't both right. So we need to go to our Bibles today and determine who approximates the word of God more closely. Is it us and our liberal rejection of the Lord's day? Or is it Jackson with his high rigorous obedience of it? There's the context. Got to think it through with me. I love what Alistair Begg said when he taught this, and I felt the same way leading up to today. He said, I feel the alienation of this command so strongly that it couldn't be graphically portrayed any more than if I were to come up here wearing the funniest suit you ever saw, and you'd say, well, of course he's saying that. He's wearing that suit. God's purpose in the fourth commandment is to free us from our daily business so that we may do business with him. Remember the Sabbath day. Has twofold significance. In the first place, God is saying, do not forget or neglect it. Remember means to observe or celebrate. Remember the Lord's Supper. And as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Recognize that the Lord's day is distinct from the other days. In Exodus' commandment, it says, remember the Lord's day. And in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 12, it says, observe the Lord's day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your ox, nor your donkey, nor any of your cattle, nor the strangers within your gate, nor your male servant, your female servant, so that they may rest as well as you. Listen to this difference in Exodus and Deuteronomy. And remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. As we read Exodus, as we read Deuteronomy, we have the principle as it's stated. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. We observe the patterns from the scriptures. And then we apply the practice. Back in Exodus, there are principles that verse 8 commands. It is clear. It is not difficult. You shall do this. A child can understand it. In the scripture, we see that God is concerned about the sanctity of one day out of seven. It is vital that we come to understand that there is no convincing reason to believe that the fourth commandment is in a different catalog than the other nine. Where you look at it and you go, you know, as I observe commandment number four, according to Prineville culture, maybe it's in or maybe it's out. 
It's interesting that the maybe out factor always has a direct correlation by the prevailing impact of the surrounding culture. There was no maybe out for General Stonewall Jackson. There was no maybe out by the minds of our forefathers of our country. There was no maybe out in the minds of the average Bible-believing, God-fearing church congregation 30 to 50 years ago. Go ask an older pastor to tell you about the Lord's Day when he was a young man, and it will be described as very different than today. The question is, have we, have we progressed or have we regressed? Well, already the little lawyer on your shoulder is go ahead and speaking into your ear. Well, there were mosaic and ceremonial factors. And so we can just toss the fourth commandment. That's true on the ceremonial factors part. For instance, you could not light a fire on the Lord's day. I'm going to Israel and it's hilarious because the elevators in the hotels have a Sabbath elevator with no buttons. No worky worky. It stops at every floor. It's a long ride. You can't light a fire. And if you lit the fire on the Lord's day, you were stoned. And so we say, hey, we light fires and don't stone people so we can just toss the fourth commandment. No, you don't do that with the other commandments that also have a ceremonial factor. Take the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. Is that an abiding command to us today in 2017, Prineville? Honor your father and mother. Absolutely, everybody upholds that one. But the fact of the matter is, if a young man cursed his father and mother, he'd be stoned. Yet we carry it to today. The seventh commandment, thou shall not commit adultery. Do we uphold that? Yes. What happened to them if they committed adultery in the Old Testament? They were stoned. We no longer stone people because those were the ceremonial rules part, part and parcel to the Old Testament. But the fact that we no longer stone people for adultery doesn't mean we don't entertain that commandment. Why should the fourth command be any different? Well, because we don't like the implications of the fourth commandment. It cuts across our lives. It cuts across what we've become used to. It cuts across our desire to be acquisitive. It cuts across our commitment to leisure. It cuts across the God we've made a family living. And frankly, we are glad to set it apart as a different kind of command that can be done away with. It's clear that the fourth commandment requires careful observance of the Sabbath. But the question is, whether this law commandment was a temporary ceremonial law given only for Israel or if it is a permanent moral law given for all people. In the Bible, there are temporary laws called positive laws and there are permanent laws called moral laws. 
A positive law is a commandment of God that is not morally necessary, meaning that the thing commanded in and of itself is not inherently right or wrong. God requires or forbids certain things for the immediate and temporary needs of his people and their relationship to him in the same way that parents adapt and even change rules for their children as the children grow older. The ceremonial laws of the Mosaic Covenant are also examples of of positive law. But a moral law, on the other hand, is a commandment that reflects the moral nature of God and our relationship to one another. Moral laws are absolutely required of and are permanently binding on all people. Although there are temporary aspects involved in Old Testament Sabbath observance, The principle of a special day devoted to worship and service of God is a perpetually binding moral obligation. See the Westminster Confession of Faith 21.7. You must ask the question, is there any abiding biblical validity for making that kind of a call? Remember the Sabbath day. Observe the Sabbath day. And then it goes on to say, how? By keeping it holy. By sanctifying it. By setting it apart. In what way is the day set apart? Well, there's seven days he called one of them holy. There was one that was particularly sanctified. It was a different day from every other day that God created. He sanctified it by his own example. Now, I go there just as you are right now. My immediate reaction is often, well, you don't understand. Every day is the Lord's day, right? There's a sense in which that's true. We ought to serve the Lord every day and every moment of every day. And the way we do our work ought to be service to the Lord. There's a realistic sense that whatever we're doing, this or that, and the labor and the charge and all of that, we do it for the glory of God. But it does not set aside the distinctive elements of the fourth commandment, leaving this one day in seven possessed with the distinction that God has ordained. God said... To remember this day in a peculiar way and make it different. John Murray, the late professor at Westminster Theological Seminary, again says, To obliterate the difference between the one day and the other six may appear pious. They're all the Lord's day. But it is piosity, not piety. It is not piety to be wiser than God. It is impiety of the darkest hue. The Sabbath day is different from every other day. And to obliterate this distinction in thought or practice is to destroy what is the essence of the institution of the Lord's day. Summarizing that, the recognition of the distinction of the day is indispensable to its observance. In other words, unless you and I are convinced and convicted that God has distinguished this day for all of time, 
And that because he has set it apart in such a way, we must live within the framework of what he's laid down or any attempts of keeping the Sabbath day will be the result of legalistic externalism or as a result of some kind of time-honored tradition or as a result of the reinforcement of what has become customary to us but not as a response to the grace of God in his creative acts, in his redeeming us from the land of Egypt acts, or in the resurrection from him from the grave. Ask your new believing child or non-born again child if they like the idea of Sunday being a distinct day set apart for the Lord, and 99% of the time, they will say they do not. So don't ask them. You tell them. Any child will buck the system. They don't like it. They won't want to do it. Not twice on a Sunday. Not before church at Sunday school. They will be sick and tired of it. Part of my testimony was that my birthday fell on a Sunday one year. I think it was sixth grade. And so I loaded up my bike very secretly in the back of the van. We went to church, went to Sunday school. And in between Sunday school and the first service, I snuck out to the van where I began unloading my bike. And my mom caught me and said, what are you doing? And I said, well, it's my birthday. And I don't want to be here. I'm going home. And she loaded the bike back up in the van, <laughs> grabbed me by the ear, and we marched on in to hear Pastor David Niquette from Northwest Hills Baptist Church pre preach a message. Now, unless the day dawns where the Spirit of God redeems the child, and in the heart of that child, who to that point has been simply observing a custom, now is observing the conviction of their tiny life. From that day on, everything changes. Because once they have ownership of that principle in their own lives, they don't do things merely out of legalistic constraint, but out of internal conviction of the Holy Spirit brought to bear by the word of God on our hearts. This is true of us adults as well. And that's why we still continue to buck the idea of the Lord's day. Because it's a conviction that it's about a distinction that God has created. And with it, he's created a relevance of its observance. Because you've never had a conviction about its distinction at any time in your life suggests that this is how you feel about the Lord's day. And it will lead to you saying, Pastor Rory, who do you think you are to tell me what to do with my time? It is not your time. It is the Lord's time and the Lord's day. And every breath we breathe is a gift from him. He who created time, ordained it to bear testimony of his creative handiwork, 
and to the fact that we are redeemed children of God out of the bondage of the world and it has been validated by him rising from the dead. If you lack no conviction about the Lord day, you're on the same plane as the person who commits adultery. If we only are going to keep the command on adultery because it seems practically useful, not as a resultness of its divine rightness and the divine authority of the God upon my life through eternal conviction, but rather because it just seems like the right thing to do, then we are left to the whims of circumstances that come upon us. When in one day we're in a circumstance and somebody says, why not? Then the command is a practical suggestion merely and not an eternal conviction for us. And when the smell of the perfume or the passion of the evening comes over my drives, it's enough to make me sin. Why? Because I've never internalized the command as a conviction. God's law hadn't been written in my heart. We never said as Jesus in prophecy of old, I delight to do your will, O God. We had never bowed there. In the United States of America, vast numbers of people have never been convicted and convinced about this day and its eternal abiding relevance. So when somebody says, well, why don't we do this on Sunday? And why don't we go there? And why don't we do whatever we say? We say, yeah, why not? Because the only abiding notion we have is not lighting fires or not riding our bicycles or whatever it might be. Observance of the Lord's Sabbath quickly becomes obsolete if it does not spring from the sense of sanctity generated and nourished by the fact that God set apart this day for our good. It's not irksome. It's not a punishment. It's a phenomenal, liberating privilege. Can I say that again? It's not irksome. And it's not a punishment to you. You're in bondage right now. And he wants to set you free in phenomenal, liberating privilege. You think about it when we go to a men's retreat or a women's retreat or we go away for two weeks to Nepal, get away with six of us, go out to a cabin and hunt and fish together. And all of a sudden, six days go by, it doesn't seem like six days. It went by so fast. I haven't checked my phone. I haven't checked Facebook. I haven't made a call about work. And all of a sudden, it's done. Why? Because fellowship together and love for one another has been higher than all of that stuff. It's the same with the Lord's day. We find Jesus as sufficient. We find Jesus as preeminent and superior. Therefore, he is sufficient. So as we read Romans 14, 5, or we read Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, do you want to conclude on the strength of all that you know by coming under the teaching of the scriptures at this church that, God, that Paul is referring to the moral law of God and its weak and miserable principles and don't let anybody judge you according to that? If that's the case, you have misunderstood the word of God. The false teachers to the Colossians would say, you are now a new creation in Christ, but now you must make sure you're in Jerusalem for Passover and the festival of lights and booths, etc. 
There were so many Messianic Jews in Europe and even some Christians in Prineville who try to thrust a return of the old ceremonial ordinances, but you don't see any of that in the New Testament. Yet Paul is not saying that the fourth commandment is vetoed from the Decalogue. Do you think by reading Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, let no one judge you in Sabbath, or Romans chapter 14, verse 8, be fully convinced in your mind that in those two small verses, he is saying, don't let anyone who's your pastor stand up and say the Christian should comply with the fourth commandment. We should keep a special day holy in observance of creation, deliverance, and resurrection of Jesus. In Ezekiel, the prophet says in chapter 20, verse 12, and by the way, I'm halfway done, but it's the Lord's day and he has a word for us. Do you think that in Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 12, moreover, I also gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between them and me that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Yet the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes. They despised my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. Listen, and they greatly defiled my Sabbaths. Then I said I would pour out my fury on them in the wilderness to consume them. Does the Lord go from this moral defilement to a whatevs in Romans chapter 14, verse 5? What's the day that Paul's referring to anyways there? Come to school of ministry. This is what it means to interpret the Bible. We don't really know because he doesn't go on to interpret it for us. But there's examples because he's writing to the Romans, who it's obvious have Jewish Christians living in a Gentile world who are convicted about the Sabbath day. But they're living with Gentiles who have no conviction about the ceremonial aspects of the Sabbath day. So you've got Christians that are worshiping on Sunday and you've got Jewish Christians that still have conviction about Saturday and they're closing their shops and they're always talking about it and it's driving the Gentile Christian crazy and they're trying to dwell together. And so you've got Paul addressing these liberties in Romans chapter 14. And in a study like this, we often say, hey man, chill out. Every day is the Lord's day. But be careful with that. Because most people who say that are more content to make Sunday look like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday than they are to make Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday look like the Lord's Day. Whenever our experience of worship is so devalued and our notion of the Lord's Day is so disintegrated as to conceive of it that we believe the religious exercises must get over as soon as possible so that I can get on with the day, then we stand in condemnation of the fourth commandment. How else could a movie like Chariots of Fire back in the early 80s sweep the Academy Awards, pass by the whole non-church people, and get totally missed over for the main point of the whole thing? And that is that Eric Little was a passionate follower of Jesus who had a conviction about the Lord's Day and wouldn't race in the Olympics on Sunday in the same way that General Stonewall Jackson had a conviction about the Lord's Day and wouldn't fight on Sunday. 
or had major struggles doing so. And so you have the Olympics taking place and, the, and, and you got Little who's saying, I won't do it. And the head of the Olympics committee says, now come on, Little. Remember, for king and country. And Little says, hey, for king and country, I would set aside my king or country never, except unless there was a higher power or a higher authority, the one who set up kings and the one who brings down kings. And I will not run. And there's not a person who watched that scene in the movie that doesn't say, I love that kind of conviction. I wish I was a man or a woman of that kind of conviction. And until we have that kind of conviction, nothing will flow from it except legalism or the constraints of custom. We would understand there's a difference from this one day above the rest and it was God who did it. That it's set apart and that it's Holy. Now we know that some people become Pharisees about this. We know it. We've seen it. We've warred against it. But the fact that some people don't do this and don't do that because of Phariseeism and they're legalists, that's their problem. It doesn't negate the proper use of a New Testament Lord's Day remembrance, observance, rest, and worship. Because in the problem of setting aside the Phariseeism that comes in, we tend to throw out the baby with the bathwater, and so we're left with only nine commandments. Donald McDonald, different than the old Ronald McDonald guy, in case you're wondering, he wrote, as the minister of Greyfriars Free Church of Scotland, talking about the Lord's Day and how it might be profitably shared, writes, I shall cherish it as long as I live. No, uh, I don't know. I'm just trying to wake you up a little. I shall cherish the memory of it as long as I live. Is that how you feel about the Lord's Day? Not me. I just, man, just the Lord's Day. As long as I live. The Sabbath in my native island, in my boyhood days. The Sabbath day was prepared for on Saturday evening. All of the household work was finished earlier than usual. Tomorrow's meals, as far as that was possible, were prepared by 10 p.m. The family gathered and the book was taken. A little footnote in a Scottish Highland home of this day. If you're there for a meal, the host of the home may at one point in the evening say, shall we take the book? And however late with the house, uh, and there for a meal, they, they would there with the house um, finish the work earlier than on most nights. On Saturday night, there would not be one light seen at 12 o'clock midnight. The Sabbath began with family worship. Public worship began usually at 12 noon. Hundreds of people made their way to the house of God. The only way to get there was by walking, yet almost everyone who was able to go attended, even though many lived several miles away. Evening worship was a six, at 6 o'clock, and again, everyone who could go was there. Particularly impressive was the complete silence that prevailed through the day. Not a stroke of work was done. 
There was no noise of car or cart. Between church services, nobody was seen outside their house except those who'd take their cattle to drink. Should anybody be seen going up or down the main road, people could come to their doors and ask them if they knew who it was that was, uh, um, because he must be going for medical aid or for some ill person or to deliver an urgent message. Inside the house, no books were read, but the Bible and religious books, all other books were put away on Saturday night. Conversations about worldly things was not allowed. Frequently, relatives and friends who had a long distance to walk to the church came to my parents' home between services, and their conversation was always of a religious kind. As a rule, they made conversation about the words made by the preacher in the morning service. This was the way the Lord's Day was observed, as I remember it. That was in a country place uh, that was in a country place. Unhappily, it is now impossible to get a quiet Sabbath similar to that as I've described. Wherever I go, Sabbath desecration has penetrated to the most isolated hamlets and homes. Sunday newspapers, radio, television, and pleasure uh, have tourists. Tourists have left no corner, however, remote, untouched. Yet in spite of all of this, it is possible for believers to enjoy the blessing of God in his day. And now I shall explain how they can obtain it. And you read that and you understand why the scripture says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. As Jesus declares himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath, he declares that the Lord's day is to be fulfilled in him and no longer as a law to be fulfilled, but a gift to be enjoyed by Jesus. You can read about it in Mark chapter 2 verse 23 in Matthew chapter uh, 12 verse 1 and in Matthew chapter 12 verse 9 and you read of the Pharisees coming after him for eating and picking grain and rubbing it in their hands and eating it and for healing people and it's there that Jesus proclaims that he is the Lord of the Sabbath and that the Pharisees have been missing the mark the entire time. Paul speaks to the Colossians and to the Romans to tell that we are free from every human directive, from the doctrines and the commandments of men. No one should be bound to a directive or a taboo that lacks the sanctions of the Bible. And so in Colossians chapter 2, verse 17, he says that these things are the shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. We find our true rest in him and that he is the creator, he is the redeemer, and he has given us victory by rising from the dead. On a practical note, the Westminster Catechism says in question 60, by the way, it's the shorter catechism which was created for children discipleship. So as you're starting to wonder, how do I work out my Sundays now? You just start being intentional about using the day for the Lord. From the morning to the end and growing in him and worshiping, keeping it holy. How is this Sabbath day to be set apart? Catechism says the Sabbath or the Lord's day, which is given for man's good and as a pointer to his eternal destiny is to be kept holy by resting all that day from our work and recreations and spending the whole time in the public and private worship, except the time spent in works of necessity and mercy there are times, some of you guys, it's necessary that you work. And there's times where the ox falls in the pit and we've got to rescue or the sick person needs prayer for healing. Jonathan Edwards, famous American theologian, wrote, the weekly Sabbath for man 
is an earthly sign of God's heavenly rest following the work of creation. That is not a rest of inactivity, but of contemplation and satisfaction. The rest day reminds us of our higher destiny, a never-ending fellowship with God. Sin forfeited this destiny, but through Christ, this glory is gained for all believers. We are to worship God each day as individuals and families, but the Lord's day provides the opportunity for public worship. God's word directs us not to give up meeting together. Parents who love the Savior should love his day, and they should strive to ensure it is a day to be looked forward to by the children. Special books and Bible aids can be set aside for use on the Lord's Day, and time spent together in learning about the things of God, works of mercy and charity are very proper and acceptable to Christ on this day. They especially become the Christian Sabbath because it's a day kept in commemoration of the greatest work of mercy and love toward us that has ever wrought. And so we teach our children that we rest in order to worship. At your current level of value of the Lord's Day, what are you teaching your children or what will you be teaching your children? There's a reason Deuteronomy says, you're not to do work, nor your son, nor your daughter. And so we structure our domestic lives accordingly. We, as the husbands of the home, the heads of the family, are responsible for providing a positive and proper Sabbath-keeping structure for our children. This isn't easy because it requires repentance on us for our past living in this area. And for me, guys, break it down real quick. Like, I'm a pastor, and I love the Lord's Day. But to be honest with you, basically check out the minute I lock the doors up when I leave here. Head down to the red box, get a couple movies, just gonna, you know, we're just gonna go and we're just gonna blah. I'm tired, I've been working all day, you know, as a priest would. And it's just like, blah. It's mine now. It's mine. That's wrong. There's been repentance in my life. There's been a change of how Saturday night looks. There's a change of how Sunday morning before church looks. There's a change of how Saturday, a Sunday afternoon looks. But part of it is as the Father of my home, I now have a list on my phone as I have taken the time to say, now what can I do in my home to provide worship opportunities for my children? All kinds of fun things. Bible trivia. There's all kinds of great videos on YouTube. We're not saying you got to be all weird about it. But you use the day as holy day. You read the scripture. How many of you read the Bible with your family? And I mean, read the Bible. Start reading the Bible with your family. Get an action Bible. Start reading it with your kids. Get a catechism and start reading the catechism and quizzing your kids and making disciples of your children. Guy wrote a great booklet. I've read the whole thing yesterday. I've only quoted him maybe once. Pipa wrote... We are to structure the day for others in society for whom we are responsible, namely those employees who work directly for us as well as those who serve in the public sector. Hence, we need to avoid shopping, unnecessary dining out, and recreational activities that cause others to work on the Lord's Day. It is a weak excuse to argue that restaurant and retail workers are going to be working anyway, so it really doesn't matter what we do. 
you are commanded not to cause others to do unnecessary work. If you use a person's services, you are partly responsible for that person's working on the Lord's day. I get there's a lot to that. And you probably felt like I just slapped you in the face as I was. But there's also truth to it. Do you realize that the mail runs on Sundays now? Like just since like the beginning of the year? Do you really, like, I got home from church the other day and the mail lady was in my driveway to hand me a package. I go, you're working on the Lord's day, huh? And she goes, yeah, thanks to amazon.com. And so I just conviction is like, man, I'm going to make sure that as I look at my Amazon prime, not on the Lord's day, just conviction about this day. Well, what does it matter? What does it matter? Man, if we were able to free people up to rest on that day, it's a chance for them to position themselves to hear the gospel. There's a lot to that. Sometimes it's necessary. We've got to eat at the restaurant. There's sometimes, it's, but do we have any care at this point? Do we have any care? Just start having conviction and remembering that it's the Lord's day. I'm wrapping up, my friends. But Isaiah 58, it's a passage on fasting. And it says, during our fast, to have a time of repentance... If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and shall honor him, not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words, then you shall delight yourself in the Lord and I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father. Shut up, Rory. It's not me. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. Simply pull the scripture apart. Notice the Lord through Isaiah calls the Sabbath my holy day, the holy day of the Lord. The Sabbath is to be sanctified in verse 3. That there should still be what's called a Sabbatism for the people of God. Matthew Henry said about 500 years ago that the law of the Sabbath is still binding to us on our Lord's Day. We must turn our foot away from the Sabbath. And what that means is from trampling upon it as profane atheistic people do. Very quickly, just reading that verse, you, th you see three ways we profane the Lord's day. Number one, by doing your own ways. You do your own ways on the Lord's day. It means don't do your regular work. Cease doing business and the affairs of our calling. We should not be going to the office or working in the store, doing our homework, unnecessary housework, nor should we cause others to work unnecessarily. This means we should avoid recreational eating out, going to the grocery store or mall, or traveling extensively. I'm not trying to be a jerk or legal. There's no legalism here. This is reading multiple writings of people who've dug the depths of what the Lord's Day is and the application today of not causing others to work as well. Don't do your own way anymore. Don't find your own pleasure. The word pleasure is used through the Old Testament as those things which are delight or those things that you enjoy doing or are obligated to do the other six days like business, work, and play. By doing those things, you profane the Lord's day. If you enjoy the promise of God, you must not trample the day underfoot by doing your own pleasure on the Lord's day. 
God isn't opposed to fun, guys, and that's not what I'm saying. Recreation the other six days is a wonderful gift from God in moderation. But we are to look to the Lord's day as a spiritual vacation. Listen, 500 years ago, here's what Matthew Henry said. On Sabbath days, we must not walk in our own ways. That is not follow other callings or not follow our callings, not find our own pleasure. That is not follow our sports and recreations. 500 years ago. I wonder what he was watching. You know, it's like some kind of weird stickball. I don't know what they played. But 500 years ago, Matthew Henry realized that sports would get in the day of the Lord's day. We have an idol in our culture. You think it's no big deal until your marriage is absolutely in the pooper and you come to see me and I tell you, where are you even in fellowship with the saints at all in your life? Where is your value for the Lord's day where it provides an avenue for sanctification in your life? I'm challenging you to put baseball and football and this and that and recorder and flute lessons or whatever it might be to put those aside. Not Monday, not Tuesday, not Wednesday, but the day of the Lord. Click. You still there? Still there? Anybody? Somebody? Nobody? Okay. Because that's mine. Ain't nobody going to touch it. And I remember as a child, I was a soccer player. You might guess I was very gifted. (laughs) And Sunday was five-a-side soccer in Corvallis. We used to meet in tents for Sunday school, and nobody else was there. And it was such a foreign concept to me. They're playing, and this is the dude that loads his bike up to get out of church, right? But still, they're playing soccer today? It's Sunday. Talk to the Curvins and talk to uh, Ken about living in the South. And they'll tell you, ain't nobody in the South going to be playing baseball on the Lord's Day. I mean, that just doesn't happen down there. Ha <laughs> ha. You know, or whatever. However he does it. Oh, sorry. That's Fred. Sorry, Fred. Mixed accents up. No condemnation, guys. Handwriting of requirements that were against us nailed to the cross. But I'm just going to level with you. We have made a stinking lowercase g god out of athletics in our culture. Or out of riding our mule. Or tinkering on our truck. Or gardening in our backyard. The human heart is an idle factory. And Isaiah goes on to say, in speaking your own words. The words that we say. Are they... Worship. And instead, Isaiah says, instead call the Lord's Day a delight. Worship team, come on up. I'm closing with one quote. John Murray. Guys, okay, and can I just, while they're coming up, just, let me just say, this is four weeks. This is, this is my fourth Lord's Day with my family where we've been specially intent about keeping it holy and remembering it. That means, you know, Thursday, Friday, Sunday's coming. Saturday, Sunday's coming. Saturday night, okay, you know, what do we need to do to help get tomorrow? You know, that's just, there's a difference. I'm remembering the Lord's day. So you guys got, you know, I'm just calling you, man, this is how Sunday's going to be looking this week. Now, and what can we do? Here's things that we can be doing. What do I do when I'm trying to take a nap? Kids usually sit there and veg out on Disney shows with teeny boppers, drama queens, and all this. No more. You know, YouTube Bible kids stories, and this, like, there's things, there's things, to help train them up. 
But I sat back in the sound booth with Jason and, and Blaine yesterday, and I was like, guys, like, this, is a, this is, I get it. It's a slap in the face. It's, it's hardcore to you. I know it's to me too. I have had to repent. I understand. And I don't, it was yesterday that I'm reading about not going to restaurants. Oh, now you've crossed a line. I know guys come from post and they just love to go out to restaurants with, with friends as they're, you know, guys, like, I get it. Like, that's necessary restaurant eating, all right? Like, there's things that's necessary, but it's the Lord's Day. So while you're there, there's a woman working there serving you on the Lord's Day. Use it as a chance to share the gospel then and redeem the Lord's Day for her. I don't, I don't know how all of this works, but there is repentance needed, amen? Like, if you leave here going, no repentance needed here, I... Like, I doubt it. I doubt it. Listen to what John Murray said. It's my third quote from him, and it's the end. I'm on page 18 of 18 at the bottom of the page. Normal sermons, five pages. But anyways. He wrote, before he passed away in 1975, it is not too much to say that we owe most, if not all of the blessings we enjoy to the Lord's day. Without it, there is no true Christianity. And without Christianity, there is no real lasting spiritual blessing. That we and our generation are in danger of losing this day altogether, few serious-minded men and women will dispute. In our time, the Lord's day is not so much argued about anymore. People simply ignore it. We are living in perilous times. A mock Christianity with its vile breed of atheism, modernism, and immorality is the religion of the vast majority of our people. If this mock Christianity continues to advance at its present alarming rate, the time may be nearer while in Britain the Lord's Day as a divine institute will be nothing but a relic of history. Even now, literally millions of people turn their backs upon it and refuse to acknowledge it. Many of these are as T.S. Eliot described them, decent, godless people. Their only monument, the asphalt road and a thousand lost golf balls. Tens of thousands of others make a formal recognition of it, not the whole of it, but a 45 to 60 minutes of it. The rest of it they claim as their own. We use the Ten Commandments to witness to people, to show them their sin and their need for a Savior. Well, I've never murdered anybody, I've never committed adultery. How are you at remembering the Sabbath day and keeping it holy? And most of the people you're sharing the gospel with will be seen as condemned before the fourth commandment. But the good news is, we read it in Colossians, he has taken the handwriting and the list of requirements that are against even you today as you are shown your sin. And he has nailed it to the cross. He's blotted it out. He remembers it no more, but he does say, go your way and sin no more. As we go ahead and move to prayer.
during this last song. I'm going to ask the, the core group leaders to be up here. And maybe even core group leaders need to be praying themselves, but core group leaders and elders, come on up and we're going to be up here to pray today with you. Because what we've been shown today is a level of sin on the same level as adultery, idolatry, murder, stealing. So much so that Daniel and the people of Israel or Judah were taken 70 years captive because they didn't honor the Sabbath day. And Daniel heard that reading Jeremiah's prophecies and he wept and mourned and fasted and came back to a regard for the Sabbath day. Today, New Testament Christians meet not on Saturday, but on Sunday, the first day of the week. 1 Corinthians 16, Revelation chapter 1, Acts chapter 20. We meet on Sunday now because of the resurrection. It's a new era. It's a new testament. But the same principle of distinction of day and keeping it holy is applied. We're going to have people up here to pray with you and they'll be spread throughout the front. If you want to just come up, man, I encourage you, don't wait on your kid to grab your hand and drag you up here and say, Daddy, you need to repent. You be the daddy that leads your kids. Bring your family and pray prayers of repentance and receive the promise of Isaiah 58. The heritage of Jacob will be yours as you ride on the high hills. And maybe you just need to come up and maybe you would just go between, you know, just not approach a core group leader or an elder and you might just fall on your knees or maybe just come and just sit by yourself up front and just stand in recognition that there needs to be a repentance of your view of the Lord's day. Receive the forgiveness of this sin. Right now, Lord, we just ask that you would reveal to us all of the effects and consequences in our life that have come from neglecting the Lord's day. Just show us how our falling short of your glory has had consequences on our family, on our own spirituality, on our care about the Lord, sin issues that just we've had no victory over, no desire, no Bible reading. Our kids don't know anything about Jesus. They don't know anything about the Bible. They're, there's just fruitlessness. If anything, my day has been marked by perhaps maybe a Sunday now and then, but a whole lot of other stuff. We ask you to show us. And as the Lord shows us this morning, let's respond to the word of God. Let's say, Lord, your word is a sharp double-edged sword. It's pierced my heart. It showed me the thoughts and intents of my heart. I'd be a liar if I said that none of this was for me. And so I stand today and I come forward in repentance ask for forgiveness and for the power of the Holy Spirit to now lead my life with the value and a high esteem of the Lord's day. Let's close in this way. Come forward during this song. You can approach a core group leader or you can just come and stand by yourself. And we'll take that as a cue as you just need to be with the Lord and yet also you need to respond.